and gentlemen. Uh... Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. So, uh, full disclosure, we are recording this days ago. Like, literally, I'm talking to you from the past. We wanted to put this in the can because I'm going to, as, as, as you're listening to this, as you're listening to the non-euphonious dulcet tones of my voice, I am driving out west with the canines to go pick up uh, the Goldberg Mobile um, in Oregon. And so we wanted to get one in the can so that we wouldn't be under pressure to record. And so we had to find someone capable of enlightening badinage and conversation at a high level of abstraction without um, being pegged to the day's news. And there's really just among the, the rare air of people like that, that come to mind. The first who comes to mind for me is none other than Megan McArdle of the Washington Post. Megan, welcome back to the, to the remnant. Uh, welcome back, Jonah. I'm very excited for this highly abstract conversation. I think we should start, <laughs> if we imagine a universe composed entirely of two identical blue spheres. Right now, uh, are they actually, you know, does something happening in one sphere also happen in the other? You know, like this, this philosophical uh, thought experiment. To Ontologically, can you actually prove that they aren't the yeah, same exactly. sphere? And it's just simply your perception that, that differentiates them. All right, we'll bring it down. <laughs> <laughs> to a slightly more concrete level. So have you followed anything about this philosopher, Rene Girard? Uh, mimetics. Mimetic yes. stuff, yeah. I am by no means an expert on it, though. No, no, nor am I. I just like every now and then I'm like, I feel like Bones in that episode of uh, Star Trek Spock's brain where he starts to lose all the knowledge that the supercomputer put in his head. I've, I read his stuff every now and then, and then two months later, it's all flowed out and I can't even remember like the basic concepts again. So I keep going back to it. But part of, part of the Girard thing is that most of our desire is, 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 is essentially inauthentic, that we desire what other people desire. And one of the reasons why I bring this up is I think the first time you were on here, we talked about dog economics, yes. which is, in my theory, was, was based on the work of uh, what was his name? Hirsch, who was uh, the creator of the concept of the positional good. That people want things because other people don't want them. I mean, because other, because other people want them, right? Dogs, there are a thousand sticks in the park, but all the dogs want the one stick that one dog already has, and they all chase that dog with a stick. That's a positional good, right? People want, they, people desire what other people have. If everybody has it, it's not really desirable anymore, right? Very similar to a Veblen, but not necessarily the same thing. Anyway, so I have this theory, and I know I'm, I'm monologuing here, so I will stop in just a second. I have this theory that the culture wars are here to stay in part because, um, and again, this is a point that Hirsch made, was that you can't promise people a good middle-class life anymore because we've checked all the boxes for, mo for a lar large number of people for all of the things that qualified as the sort of material goods of the middle class. And now status class disequilibrium are, 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 are signifiers that we are better than other people are all matters of sort of fashion, politics, cultural posturing, that kind of thing. And so in a weird way, it's sort of like 
being able to sp- speak woke because he went to a Harvard uh, high, uh, an Ivy League school. It's kind of like a Veblen good. It's kind of like a positional. It's like proving that you have mastered this thing, this luxury good. that's actually a waste of money, but it, it's a special language that you get to speak that proves you're better than these other people because you're part of this select kind of thing. And I just, the more and more I think about it, it seems like a lot of the culture war stuff driven in part by this kind of thing about a desire to be tribal as a kind of fashion. What do you think about that? I think about this a lot and I think there's a lot to it. Um, and I think about it specifically, you know, the, uh, there's kind of two kinds of life improvement. And as you say, one is that we absolutely become better off. And if you look at what happens in the 20th century, a phenomenal amount of it is if in, in 1920, it took the average household 44 hours of labor just to prepare the food for the household in the week, right? And that's not counting anything else that they did, washing clothes, cleaning the house, just eating, just marketing and making the food. And then, you know, now it's like five hours a week. And that's an enormous improvement in quality of life. And it's, it's first of all, hard to get a similar improvement. Even if I went, if, if I did percentage-wise, right, if I went from five hours to, you know, half hour a week, which I could certainly do, honestly, <laughs> with judicious use of the microwave, it would not be as big a life gain for me as not being able to, be, having to basically have a full-time job making food. Um, and so we do, we do spend a lot more time on stuff that isn't as essential, right? And we spend a lot more time thinking about, you know, positional, um, positional jockeying. And I, but I also think about this specifically about watching how politics plays out on Twitter and elsewhere. And I think that a critique of both the right and the left right now is that they're, they're really obsessed with this positional competition with each other, even if it doesn't translate into votes, right? Electoral goods are, they're a zero-sum game. They're just inherently, right? You either win or you lose. There's not really a prize for second place. But even apart from that, like I, so um, I'll start with the left because, you know, I'm, I'm going to get to the right in a minute, but like, I, I watch the number of people on Twitter who are obsessed with getting, with basically getting, um, convincing people that all of Trump's voters are just racist. And they're not just obsessed with it because they, they think it's right. It's more than, it's deeply emotional. And I, I watch this and I think, what do you think you win if you prove that the only thing animating voting for Trump is, is racial resentment? Right. Because like what that says to me is that the progressive project is impossible. If half the voters in the country are that animated by racial resentment, then like we're screwed and that's not a happy thing and you should not be mad when people suggest it's not true. You should be, you should hope it's not true. But then I look at the right and I look, I think that a lot of the right's critiques about left-wing institutional power and academia and the media, I, I think the right has a lot of really valid critiques about that. I think they have some valid critiques about how establishment Republicans handled policymaking and party building um, in the years leading up to Trump. But when I look at how that cashes out, especially among young conservatives, the thing that concerns me is that they spent, they are obsessed with their own intra-elite status battles to the exclusion of doing things like building a politics that is correct or a politics that works, right? They're much more animated by how angry they are at specific, you see this with like David French, right? People were obsessed about getting mad at David French, 
you can disagree with David French. I disagree with David French on some stuff. Um, we have had spirited discussions on areas where we disagree, but there's a difference between disagreeing and, and you know, uh, Sower Bamari's piece against David Frenchism, right? Is getting obsessed with this personal, these personal disputes with other people. I, I see you getting this a lot from, from young conservatives where people, you know, again, they can disagree with you. They can certainly disagree with me. Um, and do very vehemently. But there's a difference between disagreeing with us and saying we're wrong and just kind of being mad that we exist. Uh, thinking that there is some conspiracy in what we've done in what we're saying. Um, and and also with the left, they're obsessed with these battles with academia. And so really, I think this you see this in Ron DeSantis' campaign, right? Is he is obsessed with like culture war stuff, with the school stuff. And like, I don't even think, I don't disagree with him about a bunch of the stuff with schools, right? And I, I certainly think parents, the, the way that the educational establishment um, treated parents, obviously most summed up in Terry McAuliffe's famous thing. I don't think parents have any business telling teachers what to teach in schools. <laughs> like, dude, what 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 drugs were you on when, when that statement came out of your mouth? Um, but that said, I don't, it's clearly not enough of a winning issue and they can't let go of it. They've got Twitter brain in the same way that the, the Democrats on, uh, in the primary in 2020 had Twitter brain where they just convinced themselves that their personal beefs with this or that faction, either of the other side or their own side was what voters cared about. That's not what voters care about. It's not a useful politics. And it's also, it's, it's destructive as a way of discussing ideas, right? You do not get to better ideas by calling each other names and being obsessed with whether this person or that person has too much respect from other people. That's not a, that's not where, what the debate, um, that's not what debate should look like. And it's too much of what debate does look like. Um, you know, one of the things that Gerard argues is Kane doesn't hate Abel because Kane has a better life, right? I mean, one's a shepherd and one's a farmer. And I mean, you would know the numbers better than I do. But in sort of, I don't know, 300 BC, five, I don't know when this takes place, but my sense is, is that the purchasing power, to parity, purchasing power parity between Cain and Abel is pretty low, right? Um, in terms of like what they can buy at Whole Foods compared to each other. The reason why Cain hates Abel, or Abel hates, yeah, where Cain hates Abel is that Abel's loved more by God. And that pisses them off, right? And I think an enormous amount of the supposedly important culture war fights that you and I see because we pay too much friggin' attention, right? We're watching it at a granular level, um, are really about inter-elite status rather than, and they, and this is another point that Gerard makes is that uh, people use uh, totems, victims, they, it's a victimism, I think he calls it, where they take victims as symbols for their, for their faction's agenda as a way to attract sympathy for their position, even though the victim group is really just a prop and little more, right? And so, like, the idea that Sora Bamari cares more about or has more affinity with or more understanding of working class guys in middle America than David French does, I find laughable, right? And... Um, um, certainly not so much more that like it gives him his position unearned authenticity because of its connection to the mystic chords 
of the working class or anything like that. But this is how we use these sort of these essentially abstract tokens of victimhood. Um, the Covington High School kids, right? You know, it's like the amount of rage that that incident invoked, incredibly useful for these intra-elite sort of factional fights. And so you have like um, the fights over academia, I think. I mean, I, I don't want to feel like this Turchin guy with the elite surplus thing, but I think a vast amount of like the right-wing stuff about academia is, is that there are a lot of people on the right who want those jobs to be, you know, want, not necessarily the jobs, but they want the status, right? It's the status envy of, oh, though these experts are better. I mean, Donald Trump had this great line a long time when he was still president. Why do they call these people elites? I have a nicer apartment than they do. I'm richer than they are. My plane is better. You know, why aren't, you know, and it was like, you could feel the resentment. And I think Trump tapped into a lot of that. Why are these people on the coasts who in many cases make less than like the boat race people, but have high cultural status, high intellectual, high media status. Um, why are they considered the elites and not us? And I think that explains a huge amount of the real engines of the culture war fights. And then the victims are just ladled on top to make it seem like, oh no, you're really fighting for the common man or you're fighting for minorities when really it's this intra elite squabbling. Well, yeah, and I think that that animates a certain segment of Trump's base, you know, people who have nice lake houses in Branson, Missouri, right, where like, you, you have done well, but these people look down on you. Um, I, on the Glop podcast, a uh, little cross pie I was just listening to, um, where Rob Long is telling this story about the yacht. And this goes both ways, right? He's telling this great story about they're, they're on a like little yacht on the coast of France. And they look over and there's this gigantic, you know, mega boat and they're debating which tech billionaire it is. And they look it up and it's Herb Chambers who owns uh, like most of the car lots in, in New England or the biggest car dealer network in New England. And I knew that because I knew that he existed because my dad lives in New England. But most if you're not in New England, you would never have heard of Chambers Auto. And like it was that and the fact that the people on the boat were kind of sad about that. That how is this? How is owning a car dealer as good as being a cool tech billionaire? Well, you know, you're providing a valuable service for people. You can debate how valuable whether car dealers should exist, but he is he is doing a thing, and an unglamorous thing. And I think you see a lot of that. Um, I had a memorable moment with uh, a journalist who shall remain nameless. I was sitting in a in a group. We were talking about why all the kids want to go into consulting and and so forth from the best best business schools, the best, uh, the, or I should say, the most elite business schools, the most elite colleges. And I was like, I think you're underweighting the fact that it's because it it replicates college in a lot of ways. It's it's there's a clear progression. People tell you what to do, but the other thing is you're only around other college graduates. And like a, fr a friend of mine from business school who went into telecoms, he managed a call center for a cable company in part, as part of their management. And so this journalist looks over and she says, if you take someone from Booth and you put them in charge of managing a call center, you're an idiot. And I was like, that is a really bad way of thinking about this, <laughs> right? Actually, no, if you're going to be in that business, you should, you should be on the front line, meeting the customers, finding out what the problems are, doing the hardest jobs, right? 
And, but that's the way people think is that we should be this sort of priestly cast. And, you know, so it, it goes both ways, but obviously, yes, the, the guy, that guy on the boat, I don't know that he resents, I don't know that he voted for Trump and resents the kind of, you know, tech and creative elite looking down on him, but I wouldn't be surprised to find out that that's the case. I'm now going to look it up and find out he's like a huge Biden donor or something, but, um, but it, it doesn't matter that these, these battles between people, and I think it does animate actually a certain portion of the base. But I think that one of the problems for Republicans is that they, and for Democrats, is that they way overestimate the percentage of the base that cares about whether uh, David French or Soab Amari is better regarded by the right thing. This is just not something that most people, and I think too, on the Republican side more than the Democratic side, um, although you had a little bit of this with Obama, is that a big part of it is that People got shaken up, right? Trump comes in and he shakes stuff up and people don't really understand why that happened. And so there is this rush, both in a search for explanations and in a kind of, you know, ideological entrepreneurship of people rushing in to be like, oh, it's these ideas that carry the day. These are why people like Trump. This is what the party should do. And I actually think, you know, the more I think about it, there's some of that, there's some idea stuff, there's some fact that he's actually more moderate on policy in ways I don't like. And a lot of, to be clear, moderate's not always good. Um, but he's more towards the center of where voters are on things like abortion. But I think honestly, a lot of his appeal is that he's a celebrity and he talks like a working class dude. And all of the policy stuff, like Sora Bamari does not sound like a tribune of the people either. No, no offense to him. I certainly am not the vanguard of the proletariat here. Um, but he doesn't talk like Trump. And you see this, I think, with DeSantis, actually, trying to mimic Trump. A, a lot of the, these guys on stage, they can't do it because they don't actually talk. They're all like, they, they're all Yale dweebs, right? They're like the rest of us. They went to elite colleges. They're all part of that same class. Trump did, but he, he really isn't part of that. You know, as someone... I think I might have heard on your podcast, but someone keeps saying that like everything about Trump is explicable if you like everything that Trump says makes sense. If you just imagine it being preceded, Donnie from Queens, you're on the air. Right? Yeah, I can't remember who first said that, but I bring it up every now and then. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. So, so this is actually a great place to segue to, to another thing I wanted to ask you about, but I don't know why I didn't think to point this out on Glop because this was the place to point it out. But hearing you retell Rob's story about the fancy little yacht and the great big garish yacht. That's one of the major subplots of Caddyshack. 
I've ne- I'm going to stop and say I have never seen this movie, but please go on. All right, so it's been great to have you. That's Megan McCardle. I mean, I, that, like, dear God, that's a whole other conversation. Okay, but Rodney Dangerfield plays this garish, loud-dressing, rough-and-tumble businessman. Um, he behind half reprises the role in Back to School. And uh, Ted Baxter plays this effete judge, country club guy, who's got this really tasteful little sail yacht and Rodney Dangerfield has this giant honking party yacht and it basically cuts it in half at one point. Um, uh, and, but the class difference between the two is a big part of it, but it was a better America back then. Like we could take it out of the culture, the, the literary exegesis of Caddyshack. There was a time when lots of, there were lots of rich people in this country who were like the Rodney Dangerfield character in either Back to School or, or Caddyshack, or like, frankly, like my father-in-law, sincerely looked down their noses on the pointy-headed intellectuals on the East Coast, who thought, you know, like, you know, let them jabber on and do whatever, you know, like, and the sort of the, the deracinated, you know, Gentiles who took a, worked in publishing. These were not people that, you know, like, normals wanted to be you know like they wanted to be successful people and have nice things and like there is i this gets to my point about the 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 status anxiety of when everybody has nice things you start looking for these intangible cues about who has higher rank especially as the culture homogenizes and and gets smaller as you've written about because of social media but you can respond to that if you want but i I, the, the, the the second thing is and I bring this up from time to time on here because it's a real struggle of mine. I, I love intellectual history. I like ideas, stuff. I'm a think tank kind of guy, right? I hate calling myself an intellectual, but I like reading about intellectual stuff. I'm a coll- collector and popularizer of this kind of thing. And in the last 10 years, in part because I see so much of the right essentially embracing arguments or modes of thinking that I have always associated with the left, that I am starting to think that ideas aren't as important as I once did, and that a lot of things are better explained. I mean, maybe this mimetic stuff explains it, maybe, but um, I kind of feel like psychology explains more about human psychology and sociology explains more than rarefied intellectual constructs. I think the rarefied intellectual constructs are things that people grab to legitimize the position that they already held in a lot of cases. They're, they're lagging indicators rather than leading indicators. The analogy I often use is the history of 20th century is that there are an enormous number of incredibly influential, terrible books, terrible books. And the example I use the most is The Greening of, the Ameri- Greening of America by Charles Reich, which I actually got, I read. It's gibberish. It's nonsense. It was like the most important book of 1970 whenever. I have not read this book. Yeah, no, it's, just, it's just garbage. I, I don't read, I don't watch movies. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, it's hot garbage. But the point is, is like the same thing you can say with John Dewey's books and a lot of these right. things, is that, or for The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley, ideas gestate sociologically, politically, and then someone grabs off the shelf a book to say, oh, no, no, this is actually a very sophisticated political position, and here's a book that proves it, and they wield it like a shield, um, when in reality, the political desire was already there, the political movement was already there, 
and they just needed some things to legitimize it for public consumption, which my point is, is that the ideas are the, are lagging behind the psychological and social forces that pull these things together. If Marx never existed, some other crappy socialist intellectual would have been used and you probably still would have gotten a lot of the same crappy political movements of the late 19th and early 20th century. Can you, can you pull me out of my sea of despond about the, the unimportance of, of ideas? I mean, I, ideas are important though. I mean, they, they just, they gestate slowly and, you know, the, the sifting mechanism, it's a very coarse filter. It takes a long time to work, right? We do not still have states seeing, you know, we don't have serious people saying, well, maybe communism, maybe, maybe we should give it another try, right? It took, a, it took a long time. It took a lot of bodies. I wish it had been better, but it did like, you know, I think that liberal ideas for all their flaws, they are imperfect. Liberalism is, you know, very unsatisfying. I'll stop to plug uh, uh, Sam Goldman uh, at AIER has just launched a, uh, a new magazine called Fusion, um, which I'm in the inaugural issue of talking about uh, the question that he posed us was, does freedom have a future? So, um, you know, and it was interesting because some of the contributors like Daniel McCarthy, not liberals, and some are, and, you know, talking about what freedom means, what it's for, et, et, et cetera. But I think liberalism ultimately got the better of that argument. And it keeps getting the better of the argument because it is, in fact, a good set of ideas that work. They, they are both, I think, morally attractive, but they're also, even if you don't find them morally attractive, they are practically attractive. They, they, they are a good set of operating instructions for running a decent society. And so I think ideas do matter but they matter slowly. They matter by osmosis and percolation. At any given time, a lot of people are seizing on ideas for reasons that have nothing to do with the ideas, right? They're seizing on ideas because they, those ideas flatter them or they offer them personal advancement or they allow them to win an argument that's really much more fundament, fundamental about, say, who deserves respect in our society, <laughs> to go back to the conversation we were just having. Um, but at the end of the day, when people pick up ideas as weapons and they wield them, if those ideas are bad, they eventually break. People notice. People notice, you know, it was when, when communism stopped being a theoretical, you know, um, isn't this fun to try to picture the ideal communist society and became about running an actual society, it broke. People could see that and people didn't want it and they rejected it. It just takes a while and it's often in the execution, unfortunately, of the bad ideas that that that, that filter starts to work. Okay, so I'm going to caveat or disclosure. Of course, I agree with you that ideas matter, right? But I feel like they matter less and less often than I used to feel, which bothers me. It gives me a sense of unease. But I'm going to push back a little devil's advocate on your claims here and just see how you respond to them, because maybe that you will reassure me even further. Part of the argument I made in my last book was that, to your point about, let me put it this way, to your point about the moving slowly, you can tell the story of the rise of liberalism, where the ideas are the chickens and then the society is the egg, or you can do it the other way around. And so the cultural customs and practices of 7th century Germanic tribes in England and in Germany um, uh, have a lot of the precursors of democracy. In yes. It, right? And then 
the thing. I love that the groups of deliberative, the deliberative group that they was in. The Wiccan. Uh, there was the Wiccan, but in, 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 uh, among the Norse, it was called the thing. And still, I believe Denmark's parliament is called the Folkting. Um, That's the, awesome. I don't think yeah, I knew that. Yeah. It's, uh, the thing is actually the, uh, it's a group of people. See, this is more evidence that most of the Nordic tribes were in fact New York Jews because, or and Italians, because they were like, we got to go to the thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, the thing, come on, it's the thing. We got to go. But like the other, so the example I'll use is like the Fourth Amendment, right? You have the Fourth Amendment. Begins as this weird tribal custom, which says, yeah, the chieftain, king, whoever can't come into a hut unless he's invited. And then over time, if you read like uh, Coke and, or Cook or whatever, and, and those guys in Blackstone, it becomes this sort of axiom that a man's home is his castle. And then it gets kind of written into law. And then by the time it gets to the new world and we have the founding and the revolution and all that stuff, um, it gets codified as this sort of concrete human right in the Bill of Rights um, that says you need to do this procedural stuff. But there's a cultural underpinning to it. And so the, the fall of communism, like, I'm one of these people who thinks communism is not a new idea. It's a very old idea, right? And it's like, and the reason why our jobs get very exhausting is that every generation, people take crappy old ideas and they gussy them up in new techno babble and claim that they're new, right? So like communism is tribalism for one class. Social, uh, fascism is tribalism for one state. Nazism is tribalism for one race. They all basically, because of their internal logic, are statist or, or, or corporatist in some way because that's a very old form of social organization that's sort of in our genes. And the only new idea is this liberalism thing, but our attachment to it. And again, I mean, not to drive, we can stop talking about Sora, but like a lot of these post-liberal guys, Michael, you know, uh, uh, Patrick Deneen and these guys, they seem to think that Americans love liberalism because they're, they've been Jedi mind tricked by John Locke. But in a country where most people can't name, you know, more than one Supreme Court justice or like describe the three branches of government, the idea that they're super fluent with the second treatise on government is probably unlikely. And it just turns out that America is a really friggin' liberal culture. We're like, you know, back off, man. This is America. You can't do that here. That is more political philosophy than most Americans have, but it's good enough. And so the ideas, the ideas about the Constitution, checks and balances, Madisonian structures and all that kind of stuff, that's extra credit for kids in certain seminars. But basically, Americans are just liberal culturally, tribally, psychologically, and the ideas have very little to do with it. So I think that that's correct on an operating basis. I do think that like one of the reasons that people are liberals in that sense, Americans are liberals in that sense, is that our founders were liberals in that sense and that they set up this system and people like the system and people like, I mean, people, they think they live in the best country in the same way that everyone you know, everyone who's in a decent marriage thinks they have the best spouse, right? Is, you know, like my mother is the best mother, I, you know, because she's mine. Um, and this is, we are liberals because our country was founded on these liberal ideas and, and it's ours and now they're ours because that's how the system was set up. And it took, you know, it's been centuries of these are ours. And one thing that does worry me about the kind of critical history movement 
I certainly think some of it has been a necessary corrective to an excessively kind of rah-rah, everything we do is great um, way of viewing history that certainly some people in America would like. But I think that a thing that worries me is that when it's all critique, right, when your narrative is America is just this like morass of oppression and racism and sexism and patriarchy and, and, you know, transphobia and all the rest of it. And the only good thing that America has ever done is to start sucking slightly less than it had before. Right. I, I think I, that doesn't hold a country together, right? The, the, the keeping people committed to everything. It's not just liberalism, which is part of it and democracy and democratic norms read broadly to include things like the rule of law. Um, It's also things like the welfare state. A welfare state's a fundamentally nationalist enterprise. If you go to Denmark, the welfare state that everyone wants to copy, they slap the Danish flag on everything, (laughs) right? And that's important because why else, you you notice we're not debating whether we should have single payer, including Chad, right? We are... Uh, I mean, the country, not people named Chad. <laughs> 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 Although that would be like, we still pair, except for people named Chad. I, I'm down for that. <laughs> but, um, but like that, you know, the, all of that stuff, um, I, I worry about the way that we are fighting over history right now. Not, we're, because we're not just fighting over the details. We're fighting over, t- fundamentally, do we tell a story where America is good with some tragic flaws? Or do we tell a story where America is terrible with some, you know, brief moments of relief from all of the oppression? And I think the latter is a view that is really influential in academia. And like, that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I, but like, let's take critical theory for a second, which, you know, I spent a good amount of my college years dealing with versions of that stuff, um, you know. I went to not necessarily particularly elite school, but we read a lot of Foucault. And so this gets to another of my gripes. Basically, I'm just having you spitball my gripes for me. So like- I'm, I'm, a, I'm a gripe absorption machine from way back. I, I've grown to really hate new ideas. And what I mean by this is not that all new ideas, if you have a really good new idea, great, let's, let's run with it. But like critical theory, Yes, there are some specific innovations at the margins, you know, kudos to Derek Bell or whatever. At the end of the day, it is a very academic, intellectualized airing of grievances for minority groups or other, mar- or other groups left out of the corridors of power more than they should have been. You know, obviously for black people, we all know that, that story. And the specifics of what happened with black people in the United States are the specifics and, you know, and, and, and they deserve our moral and intellectual respect and all that. But if you're going to, as a matter of generalization, there are minority groups in every society since the dawn of society that have gripes against the majority groups. And they can tell you, you know, Irish people can tell you chapter and verse about how this institution didn't do anything, you know, kept the Irish out. Or was unfair to the Irish, and I'm sure Hutus and Watusis, and Lord knows the Jews can do this in a lot of countries and a lot of societies, right? It is just simply a kind of argument that people who've been wronged make about the people who are doing the wronging. And you can add all the clever neologisms you want to it. It's really not at its core 
a new approach or a new set of ideas. And this is how I feel about wokeness, because wokeness is basically it's 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 political correctness with a new a fresh coat of paint and some new grievances. Right. And political correctness is a really old kind of concept. And before we had the term for political correctness, I'm sure there was some other term that meant political correctness. And the danger that you get when you start calling. Orthodoxy. Yeah, orthodoxy. Right? Sure. Yeah. <laughs> You come up when you but when you come up with these new ideas that animate one faction of elites, right? The sort of the blue team blue faction. And they think this is the new idea and this is the new cause. We have a new set of victims, you know, and transgender people are our new victims, and this is the new civil rights struggle or whatever. When you have a a a, a new animating idea, your opponents on the other side take you at your word that it's new. And they think that this threat is uniquely dangerous and the old techniques and rules and procedures that we dealt with things like a First Amendment and torts and all these things, they got to go out the window because this threat is different. Everyone catastrophizes what the other tribe is doing. And if we could just, if I could just convince people that we don't need to throw away the Constitution because there's nothing the left that, there's nothing the left is trying to do today that they haven't been trying to do for 200 years. And we've muddled through and we've had arguments and we've lost some battles. We won some battles. But if you think because the threat is new, that that means you have permission to abandon the old rules and do politics as the crow flies to defeat your enemies, then you're telling the other side that you no longer believe in the rules and then they're not going to believe in the rules and you get this you know, uh, this is sort of death spiral kind of stuff. It's like, just admit that this is the same project you've had for the last hundred years. And we'll admit that the tools that we have to fight it are the same tools we've had for a hundred years. And let's have an argument about the merits of things. Yeah. You know, look, at some point, America will fall because nothing lasts forever. Heat death of the universe, if nothing else is going to, right? Second law of um, thermodynamics. It, it's, it, it comes for all of us eventually. So to that extent, like, you know, someone is going to be the dude saying America's doomed at the moment when America is actually doomed. So that caveat aside, I don't think that this is that moment. And I think, I mean, it's a lot of things. It is really psychologically unhelpful. It's politically disastrous because, again, like if you throw the rules out, the other side does too. And I think that this is something that I've been thinking a lot about with free speech that I don't think I appreciated 10 years ago. 10 years ago, I just argued about free speech as like free speech is good. And now I'm just like, dudes, free speech is a truce. And if you don't honor the truce, the other side's not going to honor the truce. And you are going to get crushed in areas you don't control. And guess what? No one in this country controls enough stuff to be sure that they're going to get to set the rules where they want to set the rules. So why don't we just step back and give everyone free speech and then go from there? Um, but, you know, so I think, it, but I also think the catastrophizing is a way of making yourself feel important, right? Because it's much For more sure. interesting to be um, present at the destruction of everything than it is to be having a middling life in the middle. Right. Um, and I also think it's a kind of a cope. Because if everything, if it really is doom, right, if the dark night of fascism is just about to descend, or if liberalism is about to crush everything and, you know, the, we've lost the culture, it's Flight 93. Well, Flight 93, you know, do, you remember this uh, in, in 2016, the Flight 93 election. 
the plane crashed. Right. Right. <laughs> Everyone on it died. And like, so now in this case, there was something external to save, right? There was, but if, if America is flight 93, then what are you saving? Were you going to crash America so that like Denmark will be fine? They'll be fine anyway, or they won't be fine. If they won't be fine if America crashes, no one will be fine if America crashes. Like the whole mentality of it, it's a way like if it's that bad, I don't have to do anything, right? I just get to stand around in a moat because if every, if we're really doomed, then there's, there's no work a day boring. I'm going to have to compromise. I'm not going to get everything I want. I have to talk to people I don't like. It's boring. Um, I would much rather sit around with my friends and, and like watch the bonfire burn. And I think that there's a ton of that. I think there's a ton of like politics as entertainment. And that was always to some extent the case, right? I mean, you and I remember elections in the nineties where there's a lot of me who then is an IT consultant sitting around and talking about it with my friends. None of us have any influence on the election. We're just kind of arguing for our, for argument's sake. But now the people in it are treating it like a spectator sport. The people in it are talking about it, are treating it like none of this actually matters or involves doing things in the real world. It's all just performance for the spectators. And then the show ends and we go home and that's it. There's never anything else except the show. Yeah, I mean, the one thing, one point I'd add to your thing about how catastrophizing makes people feel important, since we're on this theme imposed by me unfairly about elite strategies, when you catastrophize, you get to go to young people, donors, activists, and say, the existing institutions are about perpetuating the status quo. And they don't recognize the stakes. They don't recognize that things are going, um, you know, that it's the Flight 93 election. It's the, you know, that, that they don't know what time it is, as a lot of dudes on roids say, as if they're being very clever. And um, I do, and that's why I need to be the head of this organization that is going to uh, take the threat seriously and take it straight to them. We're going to take wokeness and fight them and do all of these things. And that's why you should make out your checks to blah, 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 blah. And I'm not saying all those, these new institutions are illegitimate or full of grifters. Some are. Um, I, I think history will not be kind to be the Falkirk Center at, at Liberty University. Um, but... Um, that was the Jerry Falwell, Charlie Kirk, like neologism that oh my. they created. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, they created it at, until the pool boy thing. And then they called it like the Freedom Center or whatever. So much commitment to Christian values went into that, though. And um, but anyway, it is if, if you say there these are cat catastrophic times, the stakes are so high that the old rules don't apply you get to be the leader of a group according to these new rules that gives you this greater status, right? You don't have to pay your dues working your way up in these stodgy old organizations. You start a new organization that, you know, takes on everybody and that makes you and gives you the sense that you are a hero in the most important narrative out there, which is your own life and that, and, and that you are a shaper of events. And I think that that's, big part of a lot of the performative stuff that we see that when it's when it's when people are sincere about their performative stuff it's that kind of thing that they they're telling themselves they're being heroic right and that they're they're these important characters in this larger narrative um um and that justifies what they're doing i mean like jeffrey clark i don't know i don't know him from adam i know some people who know him 
But like for him to do the stuff that he did leading up to January 6th or John Eastman, right? I mean, these are people who had to convince themselves that all these rules and customs and norms that I have dedicated my life to, they're inadequate to this moment. And therefore I must do what some people would call bat guano crazy things. Yeah, and I think, and the weird thing about that is that if you're in the Trump administration, like Trump wasn't doing any of this because the moment had changed. Trump was doing all of this because he lost an election and he didn't want to admit it, right? He wanted to preserve his electability, his pride, whatever, um, by claiming he wanted he, he won an election and he clearly lost. There wasn't, you know, what was what was going to happen if Trump left office? We were going to get the, you know, the CHIPS Act. <laughs> we need to we need to destroy the Constitution to save America. Look, I don't like a lot of what Biden's doing, right? I'm, I'm a libertarian. I want less government doing things. Um, you know, less student loan forgiveness, un, unconstitutional student loan forgiveness, by the way. But like, I, I want, or certainly at least unstatutory, not authorized under the current rule of American Unconstitutional law. works on this podcast. I, I believe it's unconstitutional. You know, I, I don't like that stuff, but there is a really, there is a really big gap between I do not like a thing and think it is a bad idea. And this thing is the death of the Republic. And part of the problem is that like no one has any sense of those things being separate anymore. Like, look, I, I am second to none in my critique of what, I mean, this is true on the other side too. I'm just going to both sides of the hell because that's, that's my brand. There's a safe space um, for that too. Look, I, you know, I think what Trump did was bad. I am of two minds over a lot of the suits against him, but only because I think that we have a problem of political legitimacy and the fact that there are so many of these indictments and the timing is maybe a little suspicious. Like, how are they all falling in an election year? What a coincidence. Um, how, are all these, how are all these cases going to court during an election year and not in the three years that preceded it? Um, you know, like, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy. I'm saying it's a bad look and that that is a problem. That, like, when it comes to democratic legitimacy, like, that's a bad look that undercuts a sense of the legitimacy of the government. That's a legitimate problem. Even if I think all of these people are acting just selflessly only from their perception of the law and the constitution, which I do not think is the case to be clear because some of these, you know, like the Alvin Bragg indictment is ridiculous. Yeah. The American indictment is terrible. It's terrible. And so like, obviously some of this is political and the fact that it's political is visible. The fact that these trials are mostly going to be conducted in front of juries that are very, to the right, to the left of Donald Trump's, you know, both the American public and Donald Trump's voting base. There are real legitimacy problems. And that is the thing. But like what he did was unpresidential. It badly wrote a like crucial civic norms. It was treasonous, if not in the technical legal sense. It was sociopathic. Was it, like, was the Republic in danger of falling? No. There was no chance, like, what in what scenario, and, and this is the, like, what, what the John Eastman and the rest of it, like, in what scenario, say Mike Pence had, I don't know, whatever, waved his magic hands over, like, your crappy alternate elector slate, like, the Supreme Court was not going to go for it. There was a 0% chance that this was going to work. The military was signaling ardently, we are not going to, which is normally how these things, like, where this, where these things kind of succeed 
is either the judiciary or the military or both get involved on the side of the executive who's trying to commit, you know, an auto golpe. And none of that was happening. American institutions were actually fundamentally pretty sound for all that Donald Trump had spent four years hammering on them. Um, and that thing, like people, they, they, because they can't see a difference between this is bad and this is like the end of humanity as we know it, or the end of America as we know it, or the end of, you know, the end of all good things in America. Um, everything is amped up to 11 and no one has to bother doing the normal business of running a government, finding, you know, compromise, getting on with life. It's much more exciting. Just, But I actually think people are getting tired of it, don't you? I think like we have actually screamed ourselves out. We're like, we're like a toddler having a temper tantrum. And then if you leave them, they just, there comes a point where they just no longer have the energy or the interest in continuing the tantrum and they stop. I do want to push back on this a little bit. Look, I agree. It would have ultimately failed. I'm fairly sure of that. I do think that people discount how much worse January 6th could have been. Oh, yes. It could have been worse, to be clear, right? Like, there are many ways in which that could have gone even worse. than The crowd could have gotten some congressmen, held them hostage, killed them. I don't know. Someone, I mean, I'm not saying that that crowd was entirely sincere when it chanted, hang Mike Pence. But I think there's a non-trivial chance that a, a, some small fra- some fraction of the people chanting that were sincere. And the way you get to hanging Mike Pence. Is to chant, hang Mike Pence. That's like a necessary precondition. <laughs> and, then, and then like the two people who want to do it start. And then the people who were just chanting hang Mike Pence, maybe they have second thoughts. And maybe they're like, I guess I wanted to hang Mike Pence. Okay, great. You're counting all of a sudden people acting in good conscience when they're whole brain, lizard brain has been acting in bad conscience and looking for permission, mimetic permission to get worse, right? And people in groups do things that no one in the group individually would have done. Moms are bad. There's a whole, yeah. So, but also, you know, in one of these email exchanges, I was just talking about this with, with Tom Nichols, when the Eastman guys, I can't remember who it was, but it was Eastman or Clark or one of these guys, they were saying, look, if we succeed in this, we send it back to the states and the state legislatures overturn the election and give it to Trump, there's going to be mass civil disobedience over this. And one of the guys writes in an email, well, that's why there's an insurrection act. So in effect, what he's saying is we are going to put, and he's talking about the National Guard or the U.S. military putting down protests over a stolen election, which the inexorable logic of that is shooting people to put down mass protests using the military on American soil to do it, that there is a cascade of events thing that even though I don't think it would have led to civil war, we should not necessarily (laughs) poo-poo that it could have been really friggin' bad, right? And it seems to me that in a healthy culture, it's sort of like, um, you know, there's a certain kind of school parenting like this. There's a certain kind of, attitude that says some things are so clearly wrong that even going a step that direction leads only from well-learned human experience leads only to chaos and bad things. And so we're going to shut that crap down right now. Yes. And I agree, to be clear, I agree with that part, right? Like we should put the people who did it on trial. I'm of two minds about Trump. 
only because of uh, this weird political legitimacy, the the prudential political legitimacy problem. Like, you know, I was was on a show that we do with my colleagues who are smart, wonderful people, but, uh, and we got into, it was actually about the the impeach, the uh, January 6th hearings. And I was like, I'm not sure how much this does other than like keep people talking. I, I don't think that anything's going to come out of this. And I got a lot of pushback from my more left-wing colleagues. And they were like, we have to show that you can't get away with this. I was like, show who, right? Who are, who is the audience for these things? Is people who already think that he's the worst, right? N- no one is influenceable on this. This is not the seventies. People are much more polarized. There's no national broadcast TV where you're going to air the hearings, right? Where like everyone's going to tune in every night and just watch. It's just, it's like a different, it's a different place. And there is no demonstrate to anyone anything on this. Um, So yeah, it's, it's, it's all bad. It should have been stopped. I just, I think that if you look at like Mike Pence refusing to do it, right? Um, I don't think that the Republican establishment, if you look at Raffensperger in Georgia, right? Like, at key junctures, there just weren't enough people where the institutions were still fundamentally sound. Now, give another 16 years of banging on them? I don't know, right? I, I would have thought that this was impossible 20 years ago. I now no longer think this. But that said, one thing, you know, and this, we've been saying this over and over again, is that there's this like destroy the village in order to save it mentality, right? Is like, we have to, we have to, we need these dodgy indictments and we need to pretend these dodgy indictments are okay because Donald Trump's so bad, right? We can't, we can't make any fine distinctions between the indictments on our side. We can't because the, the real threat is Donald Trump. Well, actually, if you undercut the rule of law, you know, to go back to the famous mm-hmm. man for all seasons line, what's standing to protect you after you have cut it down to get Trump? Nothing, right? And I think that this is like, and again, um, look, I'm going to vote for Joe Biden if, if it's Trump Biden. So like cards on the table, I, I don't think that they're just equivalent. But I think that part of actually ring fencing Trump and ring fencing the stuff on the other side that you don't like if you're on the right, is holding up the stuff that's the truth, holding up the like, nope, this is, these are the rules for everyone. Everyone has to abide by the same rules. And like, we can argue calls on the, on the margins, right? Maybe there's a little preference for the home team. That's fair enough. That's how refs work. But like, when it comes down to the big stuff, like, did you incite, did you lie about, you know, uh, an election being stolen? On the big stuff, no, you gotta you gotta police your own side, and we all gotta uphold the, the same rules for everyone. And that goes for Hillary Clinton and Stacey Abrams too. Thank you, my friends. Yeah. So this 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 gets to my true contempt for the 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 technocratic leaders of the Republican Party, and to a lesser extent the Democratic Party, because they ta- have a high level of tolerance for people like Stacey Abrams' lies, um, as well. If you own the New York Yankees or the New York Mets or, or the Houston Astros, whatever, and some other team that you're playing claims, oh, the refs rigged this, the score should be, we, should, we didn't lo- lose, we won, the score should be this, and we're not going to recognize this defeat. Every team owner f- from around the country is going to come down on you like a friggin' ton of, the major, commissioner of Major League Baseball is like, you friggin' idiot, look, File a protest, whatever. But if once it's 
once you've got, had your day in court, and now, you, you know, abide that, by the rules. You yeah. abide by the rules because if we tell people that the score isn't the score, the whole game is going to implode because we have a, we all have, like, we all want to have a winning season and we don't want to have a losing season, but we all definitely want to have more seasons. And if you tell everybody that the scoreboard is rigged, that the refs are, are liars, no one's going to watch this game. No one's going to believe this game in the integrity of this game. The Republican Party, and to a lesser extent, but still culpable Democratic Party, lets people get away with these games. And there's no institution in America that is more dependent upon people thinking that the elections are fair and reliable than the political parties as Democratic institutions. And they're utterly irresponsible about this stuff. So I will say that I think that this is novel and it's Trump. And maybe I'm wrong. So you correct me. You're deeper in Republican politics than I am, um, or historically have been anyway. I think we're both pretty, yeah. <laughs> we're not so deep in it anymore. Um, but before 2016, I would have actually said that that's more of a Democratic thing, the claim that you won yes. an election, you lost. For sure. And what this is really goes back to is Donald Trump is sui generis. And this actually is why I have some hope and a lot of trepidation about his getting reelected is that, you know, for progressives, their idea of Trump is that he is just the logical outgrowth of stuff that was already happening in the party. And I really don't think that that's the case. Um, look, I think that certainly there are more people who think Holocaust jokes are funny than I would ever have imagined online. But it's also like when you go back to it, this is like a thousand people. And that, that's a thousand more than should exist. And it's hideous and it's, it's revolting. I could go on and on demonstrating how much I hate Holocaust jokes. But um, the, the point is, that's actually still a very small number. I think ultimately, um, most of the people who voted for Trump voted for him for all sorts of weird, and people are really just more idiosyncratic than people like you and me, political professionals trust because like we're ideological. We're not idiosyncratic. We're not like I voted for Trump because the, you know, the road outside of my house has not had the potholes fixed. And like people really do stuff like that. Um, you know, my boss embezzled our pension funds. I'm voting for Biden. Like what? You know, this is, but he, he didn't, he's just a weird, he's a celebrity candidate. He was self-financed. That's really, really unusual. He came in to a very crowded primary field in which Jeb Bush was somewhat inexplicably incinerating $100 million, taking out Marco Rubio rather than the guy who was the front runner, um, in which John Kasich just keeps running long after the point where he could possibly win because he's hoping that somehow they're going to make him president at a brokered convention or something. I don't know what was going on in his fevered brain. But like it actually took a, a, an unusual set of circumstances. And then he runs against Hillary Clinton, who is not a good candidate and who has had the field manually cleared for her as part of her deal with the Obamas not to contest in 2016. And all of this happens. He comes in. He's not a party guy. Right. Like most most people, even Richard Nixon. Right. Ultimately, ultimately concedes the 1960 election, even though he thinks it was stolen. Um ultimately steps down, even though he could have stayed and fought and maybe held on to the presidency. He steps down partly because his party tells him, look, we're going to impeach you. But he might have, I don't know, he could have maybe fought that out. 
the main thing is he doesn't want to destroy his party. He's a party guy. He's like a bad person in many ways, but he's a party guy. And and the party system selected for party guys. You could not get as far as Richard Nixon had it unless you had a certain amount of investment and in loyalty to the party. And Donald Trump just didn't. And so what's happened is like the party is going along with the personal preferences of Donald Trump and the personal preference of Donald Trump was that he didn't care what happened to the party as long as he didn't have to admit that more voters liked Joe Biden than liked him. That, if he goes away, if he loses this election, right, eventually he's going to be 80. He can't keep running forever. I think that the party will stop. Unless, I mean, the, the, the risk is, of course, that he does this four or five times and they, you know, four or five is too many, but he does this twice more and the party keeps having to pretend that they think he um, lost the election. Newsflash, voters, every Republican politician who is telling you that they think Donald Trump, maybe he, they all, they're all lying to you. They all know he lost. They all know how elections work. People on the ground may well believe this. It's right. The professionals, 100% of the professionals know. And the ones who say differently are lying to you. It's a grift. Anyway, sorry. Uh, commercial off. Um, <laughs> but the, so that, you know, I, I think it's bad. And I think that I think it is. It's terrible. It's corrosive. It's dangerous to democracy, all of it. But it is very much personal to Donald Trump. And if somehow he is forced out, I don't think these indictments are going to do it. But, you know, who knows um, if a health event forces him out. And here's a here's a really kind of scary statistic that I did not realize until if you look at the Social Security actuarial tables, there is an almost 12% chance that either Biden or um, or Trump dies before October, before November of next year. And if you add in the risk of a disabling health event, it's even higher than that. No, I mean, that's one of the reasons I think it's just wildly irresponsible for the Democratic Party to put up Joe Biden because he's one fall. I mean, we like you look at Mitch McConnell, everyone says, oh, it was just a concussion. He's recovering from a concussion. Well, you're going to have you know, presidential candidates have to step over a lot of wires and go down a lot of stairs off of planes and stuff. And if you have a candidate who's one fall away, catatonic problem like Mitch McConnell does, that's not a super powerful argument. And the problem is, and I think you have probably had this experience too, if you talk to Democratic operatives who are political people, not like, you know, activists outside the party, but people who are like in the party who think about the party, right? Who think about running elections and winning elections. They understand he's a bad candidate. They would they would love him to step aside, except for one thing. There is no way with because of internal coalition politics, there's no way if he does step aside to run anyone except Kamala Harris. And she is less electable than he is. And they think she will lose to Donald Trump. Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think that the singular the, the second biggest mistake that Biden made other than Afghanistan was um, picking Kamala Harris. I mean, it just if he had if he had picked what's her name from Minnesota? Klobuchar. Klobuchar. Like, I think Klobuchar could win. I think... My understanding is that the that in order to get the nomination, in order to get um, Clyburn to endorse him, he had to promise his VP would be a black woman. So I've heard two different versions. Of that. I got to go back and check on this because I thought the promise was a black Supreme Court pick, not necessarily a black female... VP, but then I, and I had this argument with somebody at the CNN green room and then he did pre-commit for sure to a, a 
female vice president and then later a black female vice president. But um, yeah, I mean, that's it's another example of why identity politics is stupid, right? Because like if, if South Carolina, South Carolina voters didn't vote for Kamala Harris or Cory Booker in the primary, what makes you think that you need them on the ticket to win black voters in the general election. I mean, it just... I also just think restricting it to a black woman, right? That's extremely specific. Why a woman? Why does it have to be a woman, right? I get it. It's 2020, right? We're, we're in the middle of the racial reckoning. You want to show that, like, this is not Barack Obama's Democratic Party's over and now we're going back to the all-white person ticket. But why didn't you just say... You know, because Cory Booker would have been a much better choice Agree. I agree. Would than, be better. than Kamala Harris um, for electability-wise. It was, it was like a weirdly narrow, I mean, I, I just think this generally why I am not that worried about whether women are represented, you know, there, we have women on the Supreme Court, we have women, um, I don't think that it, you know, the vice president needed to be a woman, but then I'm, you know, probably just a, a self-hating victim of the patriarchy, so. I would just, on this, on the last thing on, on your point about the party, about Trump being, not being a party guy, I agree he's not a party guy. I think that is just one facet of the many faceted disco ball of Donald Trump's unfitness insofar as he's basically like our system. There's a lot of, you know, we all know this stuff about how like the founders, when they were having the constitutional convention and then they were figuring out the presidency, they were all just sort of thinking, well, it's going to be George Washington and George Washington is probably has the best character of anybody in the new world. We all love George Washington. He's the guy who, voluntarily gave up military control and could have been king if he wanted to, but he believes in this republic that we are building. So of course we are going to trust him with power and blah, blah, blah. And for as craptacular, as, as many craptacular presidencies as we've had um, on both parties, I don't think any had as little concern or outright or as much outright contempt for the greater good than Donald Trump is, right? It is, you, that job is supposed to be, you're supposed to be, I'm not saying you have to be able to take the sword out of the stone, right? You don't have to be the chosen one, but there's a de minimis, you know, just basic civic decency required for the job. And big critic of Bill Clinton, you know, got, I, I understand the anger at, at Richard Nixon. They all had vastly more civic mindedness than Donald Trump on his best day. and. um I think that's why the system doesn't know how to deal with this. And the cognitive dissonance that it's caused decent Republicans who can't handle the idea that the guy who is their leader is a bad person has caused them to shed all sorts of positions and take his or rationalize his because they can't, this is a Yuval Levin point, they can't actually handle the, the cynicism of a transactional thing they have to believe Trump is a good man. And so they've redefined their definition of good to fit this non-good person. Yeah, I have, like, I have friends who are very deeply religious and sincerely very, you know, one of them posted on Facebook, Donald Trump is terrible, you know, he should have been impeached for January 6th, but like, I will vote for him over Biden. And look, I we can have a lengthy argument about this and, and so forth. But at some point, 
um, you know, I, I understand people who have tactical reasons for various things. But that said, I think the strongest of those tactical reasons was abortion. And it's now, you know, been thrown back to the states as should have been. It should never have been uh, decided by the Supreme Court in the first place. I'm very glad that it's, you know, rockily and with many dislocations, but is being settled in the forum where it should have been settled in the first place. Um, but now that that's not on the table, you know, at some point, I, I just wanted to say, and then I was like, do I want to get into this fight? Not today. But like, what could Donald Trump do that would make you think he was unfit, that would make you vote for someone else? If he were literally molesting children in the Oval Office, I'm not saying that he has, to be clear, but would you be like, well, but Joe Biden is worse, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm actually afraid that for a lot of people, they have gotten so deep into the tribalism that their answer would still be, yeah, but Joe Biden is worse. That, that, and it's not even about any policy thing where you can do some weird utilitarian co- calculus of like, well, but, you know, I'll look at all of the Ukrainians we could we could save if we just force them to unilaterally surrender to Russia or whatever. Um, that it's just that, you know, it's like I, I often use this analogy of like if you remember back to college, your early 20s, and you would get into these arguments in bars or if you were like me, you would get into these arguments in bars. And you would keep at, over the course of the argument, you would commit to it. You would, someone would nail you down, you commit to some proposition. And then around about three in the morning, after many drinks have been had, you would find yourself kind of backed into a corner where the previous commitments you've made have gotten you to the point where either you have to concede your argument or you have to endorse the murder of like an orphanage full of orphans. Privatizing and, nuclear weapons. Right? Yes. <laughs> and you're like, well, you know, I'm sad about the orphans, obviously, <laughs> but, right? And that, that is where people have gotten with Donald Trump, is that, like, and, and you know, that you've seen this, again, like, this is not, like, this is only the Republicans, but because Donald Trump is, like, a uniquely bad person, it is uniquely noticeable. It's not because Republicans are worse as people than Democrats. It's because Donald Trump is worse than the Democratic politicians. I, I, I would have said prior to this era that the bar argument dilemma that you found yourself in in the 90s um, was not uniquely, but having argued with many, 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 many libertarians over many things in many years, um, libertarians in particular have problems conceding limiting principles. And they want to say, no, freedom good, and it's not divisible, and freedom, you can keep going until I just mount one crazy hypothetical onto another. And I used to love formulating crazy hypotheticals to finally get a libertarian to say, okay, that form of simulated necrophilia kitty porn should not be on Saturday morning TV. Fine. <laughs> you know, and like, and it, so, uh, but anyway, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, no, I would say it's, I would say it a little differently, which is that that libertarians are the perfect example of what Adam Smith called the man of system is they they like to like build, they like to imagine society as a clockwork and they sort of build the clockwork and then they just sit back and watch it run, which is why deism was so popular among the founding fathers, but I digress. But so what happens is what they want is a few rock solid principles that you don't violate. 
Mm-hmm. And the problem is that in the real world, eventually, if you run those out long enough, you will, because people, as, as uh, Robert Heinlein, I believe, once said, man is not a, a rational animal. He's a rationalizing animal. Um, we are systematizers, but we are not ourselves systematic. And human intuitions at the end of the day, and like, you know, we, we often talk about this as, as bad, but like, honestly, look, I start from a bedrock principle that molesting children is bad. And then I will work backwards to whatever principle I need. <laughs> whatever logic you want, like we're going to start with the that's bad and you can't do that and be a good person. And that's how all people work at the end of the day. Now you can try, we do need to go back to, you know, what a liberal society needs. We need to abstract big rules um, because running a big society does not run in the same way that like your quilting circle does. But at the end of the day, those rules will always fail in some circumstance because they will violate our intuitions about how, thing, about how things are supposed to come out. And to some extent, in a liberal society, what you say is, yeah, that happened, and unfortunately, we're going with the rule. And that's why the law can be terrible. But what also happens is that like, we build give into the society. We build give into the individuals who run the society so that the cop can... For example, say, well, yes, I understand that you um, you ran that stop sign, but also apparently you are driving to the funeral home to identify your mother. You are slumped over in the car sobbing. I can see like, you know, the papers from the thing and I'm not going to write that ticket because that's our right. And now obviously that discretion also has its issues, right? It can be, it can be systematically discriminatory, et cetera. But like that's, that's, there's always that tension. Libertarians are not good at that tension. They just, they, they inherently, and there are actually good things about that too, because they, they force you to really think it through. And often they're actually right. I, I was, I was just musing yesterday as I was driving home from Massachusetts, um, cause I'm, uh, about uh, net neutrality. Do you remember net neutrality? I remember net neutrality. And, and how, um, I think we're now on like the fifth anniversary, sixth anniversary of the- The, the end the of civilization. State, the end of civilization because net neutrality failed. Um, is that like, and libertarians were on that earliest and oftenest because it was just a fight between two giant corporate behemoths and there was no reason for the government to get involved in that fight. And libertarians are often right about like the application of blind principle actually is about 95% of the time is superior to nuance. But the 5%, like you, you run into issues. My, my standard view on this is that every single government agency of any responsibility would be better served if there was a libertarian in the room who could ask, why are we doing anything at all? And sometimes there will be an answer for why we're doing something that will be sufficient to at least the other people in the room, maybe not the libertarian, but it's always beneficial to have somebody who has a vested interest or believes that the libertarian position is the right one and needs to be persuaded that it's wrong um, because it just elicits better policy and it elicits more humility in policymaking. But, Sometimes libertarians are wrong. And, um, but I think they, they puncture groupthink in the area of public policy more reliably than any other group. Well, thank you, sir. I will take that for my people. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, uh, Megan McArdle, my favorite puncturer of groupthink, 
Um, thank you so much for being on The Remnant. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, Megan has left the studio. I have no idea how long we actually recorded for because we talked for like 20 minutes before we started recording. And then we talked for like 20 minutes after we stopped recording um, because I like talking to Megan and um, uh, she's one of my favorite people. And I don't really have, you know, I mean, I have, oh, oh, well, I'll leave it for the solo thing next week or something. Uh, some of the liner notes I have on today's episode. I'm looking forward to uh, reporting from the road and we'll figure out who the next guest is on this, this podcast by the time you hear this. And if I can't do it, then someone will substitute for me. And uh, thank you for all the interesting feedback on my uh, conversation with um, Tom Nichols. Um, it covered an interesting array of positions and reactions, um, which I'll probably talk about more on the solo thing, which you may have listened to by the time you hear this. So I won't belabor that. And um, other than that, uh, thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. When two of them are lying on top of me, it's like the one thing this room needs right now is more dogs. <laughs>